Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. At that time, black people couldn't get an ambulance. You couldn't get an ambulance into a lot of communities, no matter what was happening. We're last on the list to get service. People used to bleed to death while they stood there and watched, unable to do anything. In this episode, we discuss Freedom House Paramedics, a group of black men and women from Pittsburgh who would become the first professionally trained paramedics. And we highlight Because of Them, We Can, an online platform that highlights black excellence, past, present, and future. Welcome back, Distrust and Disparities family. We're back with another episode and we are in the month of February. And you know what that means? Happy Black History Month, even though around here we celebrate it all the time, every month. But we just got to say we got to do it up because if don't nobody else care, we care. My little two cents is yes. Black history (laughs) every day of the year because, I mean, we are Black and our history Mm -hmm. is constantly being made and Mm -hmm. we are constantly learning about things that have happened that, you know, were whitewashed mm-hmm. and changed and we were removed as being, you know, the stars of it, the ones that actually were the innovators, the creators, the entrepreneurs and stuff. So it's so important to learn about our history. And, you know, we were given the shortest month of the year, right. but we mm. will still, you know, celebrate, acknowledge, and hopefully educate others about, Important historical moments in African-American history. Yes. I went to uh, all-Black Catholic elementary school, and mm-hmm. Black History Month was so fun. We used to have Black History trivia. I remember writing Black History book reports. I don't know. I was I used to love doing book reports. <laughs> Going to the library, getting those books on... Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and then just learning about different people, Fannie Lou Hamer. And just, it's just like a full circle moment just to be doing like research on Black pioneers in the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's every day, every year, I learn something new. It's like, and I just want to shout it out like, do you know this? Have you heard this? Like, just tell as many people as I can. So those of you listening, like this story that we're about to bring up, I was like, oh, my gosh, when I heard about it and started doing research, I was like, we definitely have to bring this to the podcast and share like more people need to know about this story. Mm-hmm. Especially when you told me about it, where it's just like, I have never heard anything about this whatsoever. And it's an important story, and it just also, the the flow of it and everything shows that, like, of course, something like this would happen in America where we did something mm-hmm. great and wonderful, and then very few people are aware of it, know about it, have any clue of yep. any of it. So, so happy that you found this story, researched it, and that we can share it with others. Yep, so let's jump right into it. So this week's main story is about Freedom House paramedics. They were the first professionally trained paramedics, and it was a group from Pittsburgh's Hill District. They were the first group of emergency responders to be trained by pioneering doctors to provide on-site medical care, such as CPR, intubation, IV medication administration, right on the scene. So I'm going to give you some background information and discuss some of the events that were the catalyst to creating a structured pre-hospital care system that would eventually become the foundation for paramedics around the world and also just saving so many lives. And as we mentioned before, Black men and women, they played such an instrumental part in this story. 
This part really shocked me. I was like, what? So as late as the 1950s, there was no real standard of emergency care. So it wasn't really structured. If an emergency situation occurred, the priority was simply getting you to the hospital as quickly as you could. It was like, just pick them up, rush them to the hospital as soon as you can. So nobody did anything at the scene or nothing was done as they were like transporting you to the hospital. I, I can believe as late as the 1950s. Like, that's not too long ago. <laughs> no, that shocked Honestly. me too. It was just like, what? I would have thought that right. they would have been started that much earlier. Uh, we need to be providing interventions on the way, like at the scene and on the way. Right. 1950s is like, how many people were just simply dying because... Nothing was done until they traveled however far the distance was to the hospital. And it, they could have been possibly saved had stuff been done prior to that. Yeah, like you said, thousands of people were dying because they were simply just being transported mm. to the hospital. And in some cases, some places, emergency rooms, they weren't even open 24 hours a day. So once you take the person to the hospital, you had the ring the door, get security to uh, let you into the hospital. And then they would have to like find a doctor. That's just like so much time wasted. And it's just like as a night emergency room nurse, we know emergencies happen all times of the day and night. So Mm -hmm. it just seems insane. (laughs) It does. You know, nothing was done. (laughs) Or just can you imagine like, EMS bringing you like a severe gunshot wound or trauma and they they didn't do anything. Maybe they like wrapped a towel on the person's head or something. It's just like, mm-hmm. what? So it's And just, then you get there and you're just like ringing a doorbell going, will this security guard please come and open this door up? And right. Like, what? <laughs> I need those electronic doors already just automatically opening the motion sensor. And it's like, maybe mm-hmm. you didn't have that back then, but oh my God. Goodness. Ah, what a different time. Yeah, crazy. In the 1960s, the city of Pittsburgh was racially divided, like most major cities at the time. And their emergency response system was even more out of date. So medical transports in Pittsburgh and also other major cities, it was handled by funeral homes. So can you imagine if you're injured or sick and you're picked up by a funeral hearse, like they're the ones transporting you to a, the hospital. I think that's insane. <laughs> that is because you automatically assume if somebody's back there, it's because they're deceased. Right. Like uh-huh. they, they were like, okay, we just get to them quicker. Like we'll try to take them to the hospital, but if they can't do anything, you know, we'll take them right to our morgue. And interesting facts, or I, I don't know if it's interesting, but obvious. So back then in the 1960s, funeral homes, they would not respond to calls in Black neighborhoods. Surprise, surprise, racism. (sighs) Yep. (laughs) So then emergency responses, they were often left to the police department, which, of course, is no better. So the police, they showed up in suburban or cargo type vans and they would have a bench or a space for a military-style stretcher that would be in the rear. And if you were lucky, hopefully they would have a first aid equipment, but they would have minimal equipment to handle a health emergency. As you can imagine, Pittsburgh's mostly white police force was often slow to respond to emergencies in the predominantly Black neighborhood. It was named the Hill District. So residents were even reluctant to call the police for an emergency because the same police that would threaten to arrest you would be the same ones that would be transporting you to the hospital if they even showed up. I'm just going to point out this one example from an article that I read. So Mitchell Brown, he would go on to become one of the Freedom House paramedics. He reports when he was 17 at the time, his mother suffered a stroke. And he's quoted as saying, we called the police to come and take her. The two white police officers refused to carry her. They said she was drunk. I had to carry her myself and put her in the paddy wagon. We took her to St. Francis Hospital. I never saw her alive again. 
So as you can see, just the response is dismal. Just no type of support in the black neighborhood when you needed medical care and attention. And it was bad for black people, but it it wasn't any better for white people as well. Just the idea of simply transporting people to the hospital without any interventions was a disaster. There was two major incidents in Pittsburgh that kind of would create the catalyst for change within the emergency response system. So in November 1966, a former Pittsburgh mayor who had gone on to become the governor, he collapsed from a heart attack during a speech at a local mosque. And all the police officers did was simply take him to the hospital and he didn't survive. And Philip Hallam, he was one of the people that recognized how dismal the situation was, just a bunch of people panicking and not really helping in the situation, providing any medical care. And Phil Hallen, he was a graduate of the Yale School of Public Health. And in the 50s, when he was a doctoral student at Syracuse University, he drove a Hearst-style ambulance. So he had firsthand experience of what was going on. And he recognized that something else needed to be done. There needed to be a better system. Additionally, he was also the president of the Maurice Falk Medical Fund, which was a civil rights organization that addressed health disparities in Pittsburgh. And he recognized that everyone was desperately undertrained, including the police department. And he reached out to James McCoy Jr. He was a local steel workers union leader and community activists who had established the Freedom House Enterprise Corporation. Their goal was to foster Black business and just to help with employment in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. The Freedom House, they provided job training for Black men and women in the community. Freedom House also had a unique program, which was a mobile grocery store for Black neighborhoods. They used trucks to bring fresh vegetables to people's door. And Phil Halland, when he was talking with James McCoy, he believed that something similar to this service method could be done to provide medical transport to the underserved Black communities in Pittsburgh. Additionally, it could be an opportunity to provide jobs for locals. They could be first responders, managers, mechanics to maintain the ambulance, and also improve the medical care in the community. So the two men quickly got on board with working out how they could bring this service to light. And then Phil Hallen, he met Dr. Peter Safar. And Dr. Peter Safar, he is world-renowned for his groundbreaking resuscitation measures. So he was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and also chief of anesthesiology at Presbyterian University Hospital in Pittsburgh. And yeah, he would become known as the father of CPR, which is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, basically the proper technique for pumping on your chest so that you can restart your heart in the events that your heart stops beating. But unfortunately, he suffered a terrible loss He lost his 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, because she died of an asthma attack. So she was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, nobody performed CPR during the transport, and she died three days later. And after her death, Dr. Safar was determined to train as many people in the life-saving CPR techniques, including regular people regular lay people that do not work in the medical profession. So the combination of these three major players, so Phil Hallen, he wanted to bring good medical care to the underserved community in the Hill District, which was predominantly Black. Dr. Savar, he had innovative ideas on how to restructure the ambulance system so that the vehicles could become treatment centers rather than just focusing on transporting the patient to the hospital. And then we have Freedom House, which was an organization already supporting the Black community through job training. So the three of them got on board to come up with a system to improve the emergency care system, like the pre-hospital emergency care system. 
And the city agreed to contract with Freedom House to provide emergency response to the Hill District and also downtown Pittsburgh. And the funds came from President Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty Initiative. So Freedom House, like a lot of articles, they like to point out that most of the first class of Freedom House recruits, they were called the unemployed. That was like the popular term. I read that in several articles. They would just say most of the men were unemployed. Some articles, they would briefly highlight that the Pittsburgh, like most other major cities, they were segregated and It's not a coincidence with most urban cities. There's a long history of strategic de-investment in Black neighborhoods through redlining. And Pittsburgh's Hill District was no different. The Black neighborhoods were underfunded, had a lack of resources. So you're going to have a large amount of people that are unemployed, but that does not mean people don't want to work if given the opportunity. Some of the recruits, they were returning from the Vietnam War. Some might have been struggling with drugs and alcohol. They also had some recruits that had not completed high school. But most importantly, these were Black men and women eager to learn professional skills and also to get an opportunity to do something for their community. And the first cohort of Freedom House Ambulance recruits It consisted of 25 men from the Hill District, but they eventually went on and they expanded it to women as well. Trainings that the recruits had to go to was very thorough and very comprehensive. So Dr. Safar, like I said, the world-renowned doctor, he led the trainings and it consisted of 300 hours of education over nine or more months. And they went to various hospitals in Pittsburgh. The recruits, they did rotations in the emergency department, the operating room, obstetrics. They also went to the x-ray department and also the morgue. They learned anatomy, physiology, and also advanced CPR and advanced first aid, nursing skills, and also defensive driving. So they got a very thorough and hands-on education And one of the Freedom House medics, he recalls working with Dr. Safar. So he's quoted as saying, he was the chief anesthesiologist, he says. He would go into an operating room. An anesthesiologist would be sitting at the head of the patient, ready to intubate. The surgeon was there, all gloved up, ready to do his surgery. Safar would come into the OR, move the anesthesiologist out the way, sit me at the head of the patient and say, intubate this patient while the patient's physician was standing there waiting. I was terrified, said the recruit. But Safar believed, what better way to train you to do something than under pressure? We went from room to room doing it. If you had taken forever to put a tube in a patient's trachea, then the patient would start moving from a lack of oxygen. So we had to move fast. So that just shows you just one example of the comprehensive training, just so that these men are prepared to be able to work independently in the field and know what to do and also work under pressure. And that shows the confidence that this doctor had in these recruits that, you know, he was training them properly where they could in that moment be ready to go ahead and do that where it's like, yeah, you're preparing them for being out in the real world, out in the Mm -hmm. streets where you don't know what is happening, you don't know what is going on, and you're trying to save someone's life, so you have to move quickly. I want to point out, like, Dr. Sfar, he's a white doctor, and he's taking a group of Black men and women into a predominantly white hospital settings. He's working closely with them to make sure that they know what they're doing and that they feel confident, you know, being able to operate in the field when they respond to these emergency situations. And this is very groundbreaking at the time. And this is how it should be. His goal was to be able to help people get access to emergency care just to improve the link in the chain. He recognizes that there needs to be treatment on site when somebody goes to pick you up. And He's, I'm trying to, how can you word it? He's, I don't want to say he's not seeing race, but it's more (laughs) than that. 
you know, I know what you this mean. is medicine. Yeah. He he wants to save people's lives. It's about furthering the field of medicine, providing help, caring for people, no matter what. That's what it's about, you know? Yeah, because he clearly knows and realizes, like, all of his recruits are Black. And, you know, he knows when he's going into an OR, it's because he's the chief of anesthesiology mm-hmm. that he has that power that can just be like, get out the way. I'm going to have my recruit do it. I'm going to have my person that I'm training do it. And this is a black man that's going to do it. And because he has that power, he's wielding it in a way that allows them access to places that they would never be allowed to even mm-hmm. enter, let alone like with that hospital ever even really treat them there. So Mm -hmm. it's so many things that go into it where I get where it's just like, because no, it's terrible to be like, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. It's like, no, you need to see it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to recognize it. And the way he was going about it is just like, we're not even going to talk about that here. I'm going to train you. I'm going to put you in these situations where you're going to be under pressure because that is what I'm preparing you for. And because he was in that high position of power, no one was questioning him. And the fact that they Mm -hmm. were able to go from OR room to OR room and get that hands-on training is so important and was so helpful for them them learning and getting out into the field to do what they needed to do. Exactly. Dr. Safar, he was creating a new standard for paramedics and emergency care. And Freedom House Paramedics they were, with his training, they were providing emergency room quality treatment right away. So before the patient arrived to the hospital, they have this ICU training background to be able to provide that care out in the streets. He also redesigned the ambulance units. So the ambulances became mobile intensive care units, which were staffed by the Freedom House professionals. And they were trained on how to operate cardiac monitors, also how to insert IVs and also administer medication, basically to be able to perform the tasks necessary to keep the patient alive. And Freedom House medics, they were the first to carry battery-powered cardiac machines, which would give you the electric reading of the heart. And they were charged in the ambulance using inverters. And a quote says, we were the first to introduce telemetry to a hospital. We would send an EKG strip to the hospital over radio. They had a base station next to the radio. They talked to us on it. They could confirm what we were receiving. And Freedom House was the proving ground for a lot of things that are the standard today. So this is standard in the emergency department. If somebody comes in, somebody's having like chest pain. The EMS, they'll send over a EKG reading, electrocardiogram reading. The hospital ER doctor will see it. And they'll, if it's like a life-threatening arrhythmia, they'll give them the go-ahead to administer certain medications so that that treatment is being done en route. So Freedom House paramedics, they were groundbreaking and starting this telemetry on-site. They became known for their high standard of care that they provided, and they were frequently requested to come to emergency calls over the police. And one quote says, Freedom House paramedics had compassion for the community. They told me, when you walk into a person's home, you are a guest. That's the number one thing they brought to the table. They cared. They addressed everybody by their names. They respected them and asked permission before providing treatment. So as you can see before, when funeral homes, the police, they barely wanted to come to the communities. Now we have a trained group of Black men and women who are coming into your homes, treating you with respect and providing you with the adequate care that you need. And Freedom House Ambulance Services, it would eventually become a model across the U.S. and internationally. And They were awarded a major grant to develop the first national standards for paramedics. But they're just pioneers. It's mm -hmm. just so amazing all the things that they were able to do. And like that quote you said of just like they treated people with respect. Mm -hmm. Something so simple yet, of course, because people were just so racist and terrible. You couldn't even manage to do that when people 
are sick in their most vulnerable states possibly ever in their lives where they need help. And you're just like, nah, I don't want to touch them. Or no, I don't feel like uh-huh. taking them or going to their neighborhoods to take them to the hospital when they need care. They were so desperately needed and they provided so much for so many people. So Freedom House Medics gained respect among the residents of the Hill District, but they, of course, continued to face racism and other challenges. The Black residents finally had someone that would help them with their medical concerns, and they actually cared. But they had to continue to fight for respect with the police and hospital staff. So when it came to the police... The city had contracted with Freedom House to handle calls in Pittsburgh's mostly black neighborhoods and the downtown area. But the Pittsburgh police dispatchers often refused to send them. It was all based on police feeling like they were taking away their jobs, which that doesn't make any sense where you were never trained to assist someone in a medical emergency. You were literally just providing transportation. And you were doing a crappy job at that because you would then deny certain people that mm-hmm. transportation. So what what do you feel as though your job is being taken away? Why would you feel that? Right. So Freedom House, a way around that was that they would have a police scanner and they would monitor the calls and would try to get to the emergency situations before the police did to make sure that care was given properly. Which, again, it's just like, okay, they hit a roadblock and they were just like, okay, we'll find a way around this. Yeah. And then sometimes the police would allow them to do what they were trained to do. But then you have other times that these police would threaten the paramedics with arrests unless they backed off. So it's just like you're more concerned with literally providing zero care because you want to control the situation. Mm -hmm. And what, you would rather someone die than allow these paramedics, these trained people to help them. That's so ridiculous. And then additionally with the hospital staff in terms of the racism that they faced there, you had some white patients that rejected physical contact from the black paramedics. Doctors even denied help from them. And then white hospital staff members felt that the medics were unemployables, quote, And they were taking part in an anti-poverty program. So there's another quote, too, from one of the Freedom House paramedics. I remember we picked this patient up, put him on the monitor, started a line, got him to the emergency room. We saw a nurse. I started rattling off his medical information, age, past medical history, monitor readings, things that are standard today. And the nurse laughed and walked away. So you have literally people just laughing in their faces as though they're playing doctor, they're playing pretend, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about. And then other times you have them being mistaken for orderlies and asked to mop the floor and clean up. It'd be one thing if like, you know, he's like, he's telling you a bunch of nonsense information, like he's giving you things that you know are true and right, but you're just like, "Mm -hmm, this black man, (laughs) Like, what is wrong with you? It's crazy. And it reminds me, like, I worked on a trauma unit. It was crazy. There was not that many Black people that worked on the unit. And I would often get mistaken for the tech and the Mm. secretary. So that just pinged Mm. my memory. Like, they just, they look at you like, oh, who are you? Who is this Black Mm -hmm. girl? It's just crazy. They immediately see you in, like... Reduce mm-hmm. your level of intelligence and ranking automatically. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you could be a nurse. Right. It's so disrespectful. Jasmine, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are wearing like a badge. Yeah. Scrubs. Scrubs. I was like, I just, yes. just want to, you know, I don't work in a hospital. I'm not a right. healthcare professional, but I just, just want to make sure you are wearing ID that clearly yes. states. Who you are and what you do. Okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the men and women coming to the hospital doing the same thing. It's just mm-hmm. the disrespect. Just, mm. You literally, you couldn't care less about 
anything that they're telling you because you're so concerned with just hating these people over, okay, you brought someone in, let me listen, let me pay attention and try to continue Mm -hmm. and help this person with their care and save their life. Racism is so much your priority that you're just like, "Uh, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. (sighs) But luckily, Freedom House had the support and backing of world-renowned doctors that encouraged them to keep going and prove that what they were doing was vital because they were the missing link in emergency care and the key to saving millions of lives. Later on, another big test for Freedom House came following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968. So as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, riots broke out in not only, you know, the Hill District, but in other major cities in the U.S. And buildings were set ablaze during these riots. So for three weeks in the Hill District, the Freedom House paramedics worked with the largely white police force to provide emergency care to the injured. The medics didn't yet have their own vehicles, so they rode in police vehicles with a light on at night. And basically, this was also a time when police officers wanted the Mm -hmm. black paramedics to ride along with them because they wanted black people to see that they were with them and go, okay, we're here to help you. All of a sudden now, you are in a situation where you need them to be visible and sort of on your side to make sure that you aren't attacked, you aren't harmed. Where it's just because, like, because you had shown your ass time and time again that you couldn't be trusted. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they wouldn't trust you rolling around now. Not after y'all done killed MLK. Mm -mm. Right. And then with Freedom House... They eventually ended up having five ambulance trucks that served the Hill District and the downtown area. They were responding to about 6,000 calls a year, which that seems like so much. That's a lot. For five trucks? Yes. 6,000 calls? Yeah, that's a a lot. Oh, Mm -hmm. my goodness. And not only were they getting to patients faster than the police, but they were providing demonstrably better care. So at a city council meeting, Dr. Safar presented data showing that as many as 1,200 people a year have been dying needlessly while in the care of other emergency services. And remember, these emergency services were the police or somebody driving a hearse from a funeral home. Mm -hmm. So it was transportation. Yep. But with Freedom House paramedics, by contrast, They had saved 200 lives in the first year alone. And with this evidence being shown and presented to everyone, you have doctors and medical directors from all around the country flocking to Pittsburgh to, you know, figure out, okay, what are y'all doing right? What are y'all doing here that we need to start implementing in other places? And then because of that reputation, Freedom House medics were invited to conferences as far away as Germany. So they're world-renowned. People are recognizing mm-hmm. they are pioneers in a field that sort of didn't exist. Paramedics didn't exist previously. It was right. just get people to the hospital and then we'll start doing stuff. Yep. This is groundbreaking. People are like, what is going on? We need to do this. This is working. They want to see. They want to be a part of it. How can we implement this in our own city? And Freedom House, they became the model for other major cities. I know, I think it was like Miami. They even went to Baltimore, which would eventually become like John Hopkins Hospital. So what they were doing was groundbreaking. And it's like, why didn't we know about this story, Camille? Why didn't I know about this story as a nurse working in the emergency department? Why did I not? Why am I just finding this out? Can can you please tell me why am I just finding this out? Mm. Girl, I can't. Like, I need I need statues. Like, we need to research. Right. Does Pittsburgh have plaques and statues? Is this in a museum somewhere where they're talking about this? Like, because we are not being told these things. And it's so frustrating because there's so much to this. This isn't some like tiny little minor detail that was left out. This is like this is the whole paramedics. EMS just field. (laughs) It started here. It started here and it started with black people. 
Yes, played an instrumental part. Mm-hmm. You know, with learning all of this and all this amazing and groundbreaking work that they're doing, you're wondering, okay, so what happened with Freedom House paramedics and with everyone flocking to Pittsburgh and then being invited multiple places to tell them all about what they're doing, what happened to the program? So there was, of course, a lot of backlash, like we talked about, because, you know, America, racism, you get some progress mm-hmm. and they just snatch it away from you and tell you, you know, you don't get to have this. Mm-hmm. In the early 1970s, a boy was riding a bike and was struck by a bus in a more affluent section of Pittsburgh. And his leg was badly mangled. And police got on the radio and actually called for Freedom House. Mm-hmm. They said... We want somebody out here who knows what they're doing. Our first response was, that's not our district, but we went anyway. Because see, you see how black people are in charge Mm -hmm. of who gets care and they just dulling it out to everybody while the white police officers are just like, "Mm, mm." the white people, yes. The black people, no. You you see the difference? Yeah, they just like, we need to help this person, let's go. Like, And as like a healthcare provider, that's like your gut reaction. Somebody's injured. Like we can do something less, less do it. And we'll figure out, you know, the logistics later. Yeah. So the freedom house medics, they splinted the leg, started an IV and took the boy to the hospital. But then word got around that an EMS service came out, were responsible for saving that boy's life. And this led to residents that were outside of the Hill district, to loudly question why is it that only downtown and the Hill District have emergency response services provided by trained technicians, and they're still, you know, relying on police and funeral homes. Like, like, what's going on? Why don't we have this wonderful (laughs) service in our neighborhood? You know, what is is going on? It's like, what's what's happening Mm. here? But, of course, there's an extra little oomph to it, because then... Other neighborhoods are wondering, why is it that a predominantly black community was receiving mm-hmm. better care than theirs? Because then it comes yep, down to, I know. That's the real reason. Why yeah. are they getting better stuff than us? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have this exclusive stuff? Like, yeah. we moved out the city so we could be in our little private segregated areas. But how come mm-hmm. they got this exclusive world-renowned care? Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And you would think they would duplicate what was going on at Freedom House just in the other neighborhoods. You would think that that would be like the next logical step. Okay, we just need to implement these same programs, but in neighborhoods across the city and expand it, you know, even further to other areas. But of course, no. Uh, again, Ugh. this is America. That's not what they did. Mm. Instead, in 1975, newly elected mayor Pete Flaherty, he decided to slash the Freedom House's operating budget in half. So all of a sudden, they got half the amount of money to operate. And this Mm -hmm. didn't even leave enough money to cover routine maintenance on the vehicles, which were already falling apart. Crazy. Which is just like make it make sense. And it's just like, okay, so you decided to come in and go, "Mm, let's immediately take half the budget that these black people have and saving lives and, you know, see what they can do with that. And prior to this, Freedom House, the, the budget that they did have originally they were already sort of scraping by on grants. Mm -hmm. And on more than one occasion, they had trouble making payroll. So it was already sort of like pinching pennies. Mm -hmm. And then you told them, okay, now here's, you know, half a cent. Make it work. I was just like, what? What? Right. So then, in addition to decreasing their financial support, (sighs) this mayor decided to hinder them further by passing an ordinance that banned ambulances from using their sirens in certain neighborhoods, (sighs) which of course would then significantly slow their response times. (laughs) It's like, you know, they're setting records, get into the scene faster because they have these alarms. So people know they need to get out of the way. Like Mm -hmm. an emergency vehicle is coming to the scene and you put an ordinance to, you know, ban that. Like, Like, make it make sense. Do you not want people to live? Like, 
Clearly what? not. Or it's not, or even you don't look at it that way, but that is the the effect of what you're doing. Because what you're it feels like what he's trying to do is make sure that all of a sudden their glowing numbers, all the lives that they're saving, all those it goes down. And you start mm-hmm. then maybe you can easily then question, well, are they really needed? Are they really that great? Right. When like, could you imagine? An ambulance now not being able to put a siren on the entire time it's on its way to the hospital. Like, right. are you kidding me? It's like you're clearly trying to tank the program. Yep. That's helping so many people. Mm-hmm. And as you put it, he was doing all this hating ass activity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's no other way. To... That isn't. That isn't. No as you put it, it's hating ass activity. <laughs> Basically. But they were still recognized because in that same year, in 1975, the federal government chose Freedom House to field test the first standardized training curriculum for EMS providers. Right. So, so they are doing the right thing. They're being recognized mm-hmm. internationally, the federal government. But the local state government is putting in all these roadblocks and hindrance from preventing them from doing their job. It's no other way besides calling this hating ass activity just blatant racist activity like Mm -hmm. these are black men and women they are creating standards providing care oh you know what just came to my mind like you're about to get into it (laughs) like (laughs) this is basically the plot for um what's that cheerleading movie (laughs) oh um Bring it on. Yes! <laughs> they they pulled what they about to do next is a bring it on move. <laughs> yes. Like, yes, it is. So the final nail in the coffin for Freedom House after, you know, Raggedy Mayor Pete was doing all these mm. things. He decided that he would no longer contract with Freedom House. And he decided to replace it with a city-run ambulance service. So This new Mm. ambulance service got all the funding and resources they needed, but none of the new recruits were black. Mm. And their former medical director, Nancy Caroline, got the city staff to hire some of the Freedom House staff, but most of them were quickly reassigned to non-medical or non-essential duties. And of course, overseen by white people. Overseen by white people that had less qualifications and training and experience than them. Like... Again, this is so frustrating. Yes. Where it's just like we this whole story of mm. like, oh my God, all these amazing things. And now it's just like, okay, no, because you're black, we're just gonna immediately go, oh no, 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 you can't do this anymore. You and now we're gonna put someone in charge of you that doesn't know what in the world mm. they're doing, but they'll be the ones telling you what you can and can't do. It, right. We just want to steal all this amazing work that True did, and we just want to duplicate it with all white people. Like, ugh. it's just insane. Like, ugh, it's just so, so frustrating. frustrating. Mm. And so, of course, without the city contract, Freedom House couldn't operate any longer. So, Mitchell Brown, who we had quoted earlier, he recalls that their last call in 1975 was an elderly woman in the Hill District who had broken her hip. It's just a sad way to end it. And it's just like in such a short time, I believe we started in 1968 to 1975, they've created a whole brand new EMS emergency response system that is world-renowned. Cities Mm -hmm. are starting to copy this. And then one mayor comes in and just... That's basically, amazing. right, shuts down the whole program Just that's saving millions of lives. One of the things you even pointed out, too, is that as late as the 1990s in the city of Pittsburgh, their EMS program was 98% white. 98%. And it, this is by design. You're blocking yes. black people from entering this field. Can you imagine like you're the first black EMS, you're doing all this amazing work, you have children, you want them to follow in your footsteps and they just have to face, they can't get into the profession as well. It remains 98%. And you also have a predominantly black neighborhood that you're servicing. 
just imagine like residents, they were being served by black people that care about them mm-hmm. and were coming into their homes and helping them. And then just imagine the drastic switch. And, you know, that's part of the reason, you know, the distrust, why people don't trust, you know, certain medical providers, professions and things like that, like because mm-hmm. of incidents like this. You have, yeah, like you said, black people providing care with respect. Now you have white people coming in. What assumptions are you going to be making? Because one of the medics who, you know, his mother had a stroke and unfortunately passed, the police officer, he said just, oh, she's Mm -hmm. drunk. So who else is also making a racist assumption about what someone is going through because you don't actually care to delve into are they experiencing a medical emergency and how can I help? It's like, "Mm, it's just another black person doing whatever they're doing. You know, they're lazy, they're drunk, they're unemployables. So you're not providing the same level of care you are to white people. Yeah, and it's just as late as the 1990s that the EMS program remained 98% white and it's just, People wonder, like, why aren't there as many Black nurses, Black doctors, you know, diversity in various fields and things? There's a lot of gatekeeping going on. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, if you dig back the layers, the foundation is just like racism. And it's just like keeps carrying on from generation to generation. And it's like, they had their foot in the door. They were breaking down. And quickly, they come in and they snatch it away. And then Mm -hmm. it just becomes... A completely whitewash program. And like the doctors that work with the Freedom House paramedics, Dr. Safar, and who was it, Nancy Caroline, you know, they're recognized, you know, for their contributions with CPR and also like the EMS textbook. But how come the first, Mm -hmm. you know, professionals, paramedics, how come these Black men and women are not recognized? Why, you know, do we not know like more of their names and more of the history? Moving on to our organization for this week, because there's probably so many stories like Freedom House Paramedics that exist that we need to know about, that we need to learn about. And like our Black history needs to be studied, examined and recognized. 365 days of the year. We wanted to provide you guys with another resource to get more content and more news focused on Black people's contributions and just like the groundbreaking work that they have been doing. This week's organization that we want to highlight is Because of Them We Can. I know I've been following their Instagram for a while. They started back in February 2013. Because of Them We Can was started by Unique Jones Gibson. It started out as a 28-day photo campaign where children appeared as iconic Black history figures of the past and present. Inspired by her sons, Chase and Amari, it was a way to teach and refresh Black history while connecting the dots between the past, present, and future. Today, it has evolved into a movement via an online platform that reached millions of people monthly. They report that they are committed to responsibly engaging our audience, especially our children, with content and tools that help them embrace, amplify, and exude Black excellence on a daily basis. I think that's just an amazing statement. It really is. That's really where you have to start because, unfortunately, that's where it starts so early on in this country Mm -hmm. and around the world where Black people are told that they're lesser than and their self-esteem takes a hit. And they might have started out with all these dreams and goals, but are told, well, that's not for you. And you shouldn't even dream that high because why would you ever think that you could accomplish that? So embracing who you are, embracing your identity, and then showing people, amplifying, you know, the stories of so many others that look like Mm -hmm. us that are in our community can really help you then, you know, have that confidence, exude 
that black excellence that it's just like, yes, you can do it. You are capable of it. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Right. And a lot of times with African-American history, all they want to teach you is slavery. And with this whole ban on books and stuff, they don't even want to teach you that. They don't want to teach you the correct information. So it's like you need resources like because of them we can so we can learn positive and uplifting stories. And it starts when you're young, Mm -hmm. recognizing this history. You need to be able to see yourself in those roles. So we need to know where we came from, what we're fighting for. And also we're making history today. There are so many firsts, so many things. And they even have a tab it's called like the first, which features like past and present black history, people making history. And like some of the examples that I was just looking at, it was Claudine Gay. She just made history at Harvard. She was named the first black president in Harvard's history. In their 400 years, this is their first black president. It's like crazy. Insane. Like so many firsts are happening to this day. So it's it's inspiring. It's uplifting. I also found on their website, they have this pledge, which says, I will honor the sacrifices of my ancestors. I will believe in me. I will pursue my dreams. I will help others along the way. Just a, just amazing affirmation and quote and just pledge. So what they're doing, you know, and. Like I said, I found out about them because it was like the little kids, they were dressed up as like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Rosa Parks, just various black figures. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cute. And then they'll have other people and it's like you learn about different things and just seeing how the platform has grown and transformed. Go follow them on their, they have Facebook, Instagram, a website because of them we can. And they have merch and just tools, especially if you have young kids, so you can teach them their history in an engaging and fun way. And we'll have links to Because of Them in the show notes. And also you can check out our Instagram page because we'll feature them there as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.